The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 16 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So before we get started... I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. Sound familiar? Hey, I go there. I hit it up all the time. I hit it at least once a day. And they have much more than just recaps of the show. They cover all kinds of cybersecurity news. They profile incident of the week. They list upcoming events. They have some really cool white papers you might want to check out. It's just a really cool site. It's where the cool kids hang out. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. Again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So people are pounding away at the playback episodes all over the net, and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So, you know, keep helping me get the word out. If you want to listen to a show with credibility, if you're tired of the fakers out there, and let me tell you, there are a lot of fakers in the cybersecurity business these days. I know you know what I'm talking about. Then this is the show for you. Aside from hearing us on the Voice America Business Channel, one of the easiest ways you can listen to playbacks on different episodes of the show is to go to www.taskforce7radio.com and hit the Episodes tab. That's right. Just go to TaskForce7Radio.com, hit the Episodes tab, and once you're there, you can easily scroll through every episode of TF7 Radio that has been aired on Voice America. It's really that easy. And the numbers off the site are awesome. I mean, they're telling me people are really splurging on TF7 right now. The site's very easy to navigate. We're improving it all the time. It's very basic. I think you're going to like it. It's a great place to visit and learn more about TF7 and our guests. So make sure you check it out. And don't forget, for your convenience, you can also find all prior Task Force 7 radio episodes for playback on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, and Player.fm. It's impossible not to find us anymore. And if you want to make it simple and just scroll through your options, just just Google us. Type in Task Force 7 radio, and all your options will come up. And last but not least, we're all over social media. No matter what your favorite social media platform is, we have a presence to follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. 
And please, if you're a big fan of the show, whether you're on iTunes or one of our other podcast sites or one of our social media sites, please help us to get the word out by leaving a review and giving us five stars. The ratings are just starting to accumulate, and we're looking pretty Jersey strong right now, so I'm liking it. I'm loving it. So we're going to have Tom Pager back on the show tonight. He's a former Secret Service agent and now the Chief Security Officer of New Star. And Tom should have some interesting perspectives on cybersecurity events to share with us. But first, I want to talk about what's going on out there in California. I mean, there's two politicians out there that just can't help themselves. They just can't help themselves. They're in a tizzy over the tax cuts. They're having meltdown after meltdown after meltdown. And now it seems they may have lost their minds. According to an article on foxnews.com, and I can't believe my eyes, California lawmakers have proposed a bill that would compel companies in the state of California making more than $1 million to turn over half, half of their entire tax cut savings that they will realize from the tax cuts that were just passed by Congress to the state of California. Are you kidding me? It's ridiculous. Before I tell you why I'm mentioning this on this show, let me share this with you. We finally got a a group of federal lawmakers in this country to bring down taxes for U.S. corporations, including cybersecurity companies, which was one of the biggest corporate tax rates in the world. In the world. It was one of the highest in the world. To something more reasonable and more in line with other first world countries so that we can actually compete on a global basis and create an environment that allows our companies to take their hard-earned money and invest it in new innovation, robotics, automation, disruptive technologies, research and development. Maybe they want to expand their business or hire more people, give their employees bonuses, increase employees' salaries so they can improve their family's quality of life. And generally, just in general, jumpstart our economy That has seemingly taken off like a rocket once our lawmakers took the regulatory and tax handcuffs off of all of us. So we're not fighting to survive with two hands tied behind our back. So what's this have to do with cybersecurity, you ask? I'll tell you what it has to do. It has to do everything with cybersecurity. This proposal will punish technology and cybersecurity more than any other job sector in the United States. As most in the cybersecurity business already know, Silicon Valley is the home of many of the world's largest and most successful high-tech cybersecurity companies. Everybody knows that. I did a quick check of Wikipedia just to see some numbers, just because it's easy. And many of the largest high-tech corporations, including the headquarters of 39 tech businesses and Fortune 1000, and thousands, thousands of tech and cybersecurity startup companies, are in Silicon Valley. That's in California, folks. So Silicon Valley also accounts for one-third of all of the venture capital invested in the United States, which has helped Silicon Valley become a leading hub and startup ecosystem for high-tech innovation and scientific development, specifically in cybersecurity. So as the voice of cybersecurity, this kind of thing outrages me, okay? So what happens after we finally get a government to bring us back into line with the rest of the world? So we can get America back on our feet. And specifically for our audience's interest, allow cybersecurity companies to start investing in their businesses that protect our critical infrastructures and keep us safe from the people who want to deprive us from our way of life. What happens? I'll tell you what happens. We get these two clowns 
Assembly members Kevin McCarty, a Democrat out of Sacramento, and Phil Ting, a Democrat out of San Francisco, who have proposed an assembly constitutional amendment that would enact a tax surcharge on all California companies, including the massive cybersecurity presence in Silicon Valley, who are making more than $1 million to turn over half. That's half of their entire tax cut savings they are receiving from the federal tax breaks they're getting, which is some much-needed tax relief, to the state of California. I mean, I can't believe I'm even reading this. So the cybersecurity companies that you know, you know all some of these companies very well. Palo Alto Networks, Cisco Systems, Fortinet, FireEye, Symantec, Splunk, Proofpoint. Everybody knows Proofpoint. Imperva. DB Networks, Tanium, Tanium, Qualys, VMware, all these, Palantir, HP, Bay Dynamics, Bluecoat, Malwarebytes, another great company. They're going to get hammered, all these, they're going to get hammered. They're going to get hammered by this business-killing tax surcharge if these two clown lawmakers are able to get the proposed legislation signed into law. I mean, who are they to bring down this warped idea of social justice on the hardworking security companies in Silicon Valley? These people have lost touch with reality. In order to pass, the bill needs approval from two-thirds of the California legislature, from which the Democrats have recently lost their supermajority. And folks, this isn't a Democrat thing or a Republican thing, okay? Task Force 7 is the advocate for cybersecurity. We're the voice of cybersecurity. This bill is going to hurt cybersecurity in America. I can't imagine Republicans or Democrats voting for this, even if one of them didn't hold the the supermajority. It's idiotic. It's anti-business. It's not intelligent, folks. It's not good business. It's self-defeating. It's insanity. It's a cybersecurity killer. But if it does pass from there, the bill would have to be signed by Governor Jerry Brown before going to the voters for a final approval. So what are they going to do? What are the voters going to do? The voters going to vote to bankrupt their state? I don't think so. I hope not. If you live out in California and you care about cybersecurity, don't vote to approve this bill. Again, it's a cybersecurity killer. Cybersecurity firms who are predominantly out in Silicon Valley who are critical to coming up with solutions to protect our critical infrastructure and our national security will be at a huge disadvantage to not only compete globally, but they will be just be at a disadvantage in general when it comes to competing with other companies in the United States. We want these companies to innovate. We want them to invest in their businesses, and they will if we let them. I got to tell you, if this bill passes, you're going to see a mass exodus out of California by companies into other states across the country that have much friendlier tax laws, that are much more business friendly, that, that allow companies to expand and grow, and, don't, and, and they don't punish them. They don't punish these companies because that's what this is. And if that happens in California, if all these companies leave, they will be in even more trouble than they are right now financially. So if you live in California, call your lawmakers up, post it on social media, make signs, talk to your friends, make sure people know that this bill is really, really bad. It's a bad idea. It's bad for Silicon Valley. It's bad for cybersecurity companies. And that means it's bad for the state of California, and it's bad for America. Jeez, these people need to smarten up.
All right, I'm all wound up. Let's, let's move on to some other cybersecurity news. Rounders is reporting that the former security chief of Uber Technologies sworn in a closed legal proceeding that he knew of no attempts to steal trade secrets from anyone, including Alphabet Incorporated's self-driving unit at Waymo, and would be shocked, quote-unquote shocked, if that had occurred. So in a deposition taken in mid-December near San Francisco, Joe Sullivan Uber security chief from 2015 to 2017 said the most explosive claims made by another former Uber employee of unethical and illegal behavior by members of his security team were false. So the, the testimony described to Reuters by people familiar with it, okay, so they don't have direct access to it, but it's described by, by people familiar with the testimony. I'd like to know who the people familiar with it are came in connection with a lawsuit brought by Waymo, which accuses arch-rival Uber of stealing trade secrets. Now, Sullivan's testimony has not been made public. He has not spoken in open court or spoken publicly since leaving Uber in November when he was fired following an investigation. So the previously unreported testimony from the one-time senior Uber official, as, as well as interviews conducted by routers with five, five current and former Uber employees rebut statements made in the explosive 37-page letter last year that triggered the internal probe and drew the attention of federal prosecutors who are still investigating. Now, you all know the background. We've gone over this extensively here on the previous two episodes of Task Force 7 Radio. Jacob's lawyer wrote that Uber's security apparatus was engaged in stealing trade secrets, spying on executives, wiretapping people, among a host of other questionable behavior. The letter outlined a whole host of serious allegations. So Sullivan and his testimony and other executives in interviews with Reuters questioned Uber's decision to pay Jacobs a $7.5 million settlement and offer him a consulting contract in connections with his threats to expose Uber's alleged wrongdoing. So I didn't know they offered the guy a consulting contract. I didn't know that. I mean, maybe I missed that someplace, but that was news to me when I read it last week. And then and I guess so, he, so he's still paid by Uber as a consultant. I mean, I wonder who he reports to. It, that would be interesting to know, considering the issues at hand. So now what's next is really interesting, because I mentioned this before when analyzing previous statements by Uber in relation to Jacob's claims that Uber seemed to indicate that they did find some truth in at least some of the allegations made by Jacobs in his whistleblowing letter. And I, I said this in, in previous episodes. So Reuters reported that an Uber spokesman did not comment on the implication of Sullivan's testimony, but said that Uber had already substantiated some of Jacobs' claims, although nothing was related to Waymo. He added that the company is, quote-unquote, changing the way we do business, putting integrity at the core of everything we do. So a spokesman for Waymo declined to comment for the Reuters, the Reuters story. Jacob's attorney in the, in the Waymo case, Martha Borsch, did not write the 37-page letter and did not respond to requests for comment. So it's interesting that Jacob's is using a different lawyer for the case than he did for the letter. So Jacobs did not respond to a request for comment either, which is expected. So attorneys for Waymo have said in court that over the nearly year-long case, they have amassed a file of evidence against Uber and were ready to go to trial. They were ready to go before the revelation of the Jacobs letter came out. 
a few months ago. So, and, and this came days before the original trial date to kick off the trial. So Reuters reports that Waymo filed a court document that said it had corroborated some of Jacob's claims about Uber's data-gathering efforts against its rivals, but the specifics were redacted, as we, we all know. We've, gone, we've flushed this letter out pretty good over the last two episodes. So <clears throat> in interviews with, with Reuters, three current, current Uber executives repeated Sullivan's rejection of Jacob's claims and say they were unaware of any of the law-breaking allegations by Jacob's or alleged by Jacob's. So they called Jacob's statements that the, the, that the, the, security, the security unit there had misused attorney-client privilege or encouraged the use of ephemeral messaging services in order to cover up improper behavior. They, they called that completely false. And I think that's important to report, right? I want to cover both sides of this. So as a quick reminder, we covered this in the last two episodes. And just to remind folks, Uber received a letter from Jacobs in May of 2017, but it was not publicly disclosed until November when federal prosecutors shared the letter with the judge overseeing the Uber Waymo lawsuit, which we reported was a very highly unusual move. And we've gone over the previous episodes on why, why why that happened. So the judge delayed the trial until Waymo attorneys had a chance to question Sullivan and other, uh, other Uber employees about this letter. In his own recent court appearance in the Waymo's case, Jacob stood by his claims that Uber's security team spied on and stole from competitors and tried to cover their tracks. But he admitted he was not aware of Uber stealing anything from Waymo. And that was totally contradicting part of his letter. Now, he attributed the, the, the contradiction to a miscommunication with the attorney who wrote the letter on his behalf. And so I don't really understand that. I mean, I don't understand how that happens. He, he didn't read the letter before his attorney submitted it on his behalf. I mean, does anyone really believe that? A 37-page letter and, 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 a, and a serious allegation like this? I mean, I kind of don't buy that. As far as career battles go, I mean, you're in the fight of your career here. You retain an attorney. You disclose to him that you want to blow the whistle on a plethora of ho- and a host of criminal activity that, that, that could have negative implications on you, your company that you work for, and a lot of people that still work there. And you don't read the letter, the fact check it, before the attorney forwards the letter to the legal department at Uber? With so much on the line, you don't even read it? I mean, come on, give me a break. That doesn't ring true to me at all. So, though the new accounts contest most of Jacob's claims, his letter played a major and previously undisclosed role in the bitter battle for control over Uber, according to the current and top uh, former executives that were interviewed by Reuters. So, it, the letter seems to have landed in May as, as Kalanick the former CEO and the board were clashing over what his role was going to be at the company and, and the board of directors was involved, obviously, and they were hearing the results of other investigations, including a sexual harassment claim. So I guess the letter hit just as everyone was doing battle over, over there and, and how the company was going to be run and who was going to be running it in the future and, and so on and so forth. So Kalanick ended up resigning under pressure the following month. So by then... The committee of directors had assumed oversight of the investigation into the Jacobs letter, led by law firm Wilmer Hale, which I disclosed in previous episodes. 
which eventually uncovered an event that was not in the Jacobs letter, and that was the 2016 data breach the current and former executives informed Reuters. So this is interesting how this all went down, and it's becoming clearer and clearer through every episode. So in interviews with Reuters, current and former members of Sullivan's security team provided details of the hack that were previously unreported, and they defended the payout Uber made to this Florida hacker. So in the emails among Uber's security staff and a representative for the hacker, Uber treated the breach as a bug bounty. And that's something that's normally reserved for hackers who discover weaknesses in the system without, without extracting the data, allegedly. All right? I mean, it depends. I mean, in this case, in this case that we're going to go over this, there was information that was allegedly deleted. So it says, you know, that this is usually people who discover weaknesses in the system that don't actually pull the data. Now, this is very, very important. You know, you try to follow me here because... This is very, very important to this incident because it all comes down to notification, I think, is what's going on here, right? Um, and we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about Tom Pedro about bug bounties and how this is playing out. But it says that Investigations Chief Matt Henley established the hacker's identity and secretly obtained access to electronic records showing that the Uber data had been deleted, giving Sullivan and other members of the security team comfort that it had not reached any criminals. This is what the security staffers said to Reuters. So with, with no data on the loose, and, 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 and that would be a danger to customers in the company, they felt that Uber did not have to disclose the breach to regulators. Now, I've commented on this before, and I've worked on dozens of these cases as the global head of investigations for the largest bank and one of the most regulated companies in the country at J.P. Morgan Chase. And I can tell you, if an unauthorized person gain access to our data, it's reportable. I mean, whether or not we had forensic evidence that the person deleted the data after they possessed it, or, and we pursued that information, believe me, and it was good to know information, even though if we did have to report it, it was still good to know that we could tell people, that, hey, look, we have some evidence that this was deleted, and so on and so forth. But that really didn't matter in terms of report, uh, reportability. I mean, I can think of a half a dozen ways that that data could still exist outside our systems to unauthorized individuals once it was compromised. I mean, quite frankly, I can't think of a scenario where this would not be reportable as long as you have evidence that the information was exfiltrated from your systems. So, in addition, Reuters reported that the Uber employee said Sullivan was not responsible for Uber's decision about whether to disclose data breaches to regulators since this decision was made by the legal department. Now, I always wondered about this. Now, this is something that has bothered me now for a while. Why is Joe Sullivan taking the fall for not reporting the bug bounty to regulators? I mean, he was the chief security officer. He ran the security department. He wasn't the lead general counsel. He didn't run the legal department. He didn't run the compliance department. He wasn't the chief privacy officer. He didn't run the privacy department over there. He ran the security department. It doesn't matter that he was a lawyer, okay? It doesn't matter to me. I don't want to hear that baloney. It wasn't his role or his responsibility, or at least it shouldn't have been, to, to determine if Uber made notifications to regulators about the disclosure of their employees or their customer data. This has bothered me for some time. If that's the only reason that, that he was fired, then there's something wrong here, right? Because it sounded more and more to me like this guy's been made the fall guy. That's just what it sounded to me looking at this objectively. And I know... There's people out there right now. Oh, here we go again. Here we go. It's the good old boys club, right? I've heard this crap a couple times, 
right? Reedus is defending Joe to the end. No, no, it's not. It's not. I'm not doing that, okay? It's not a biased opinion. Would you like to be held accountable for something that you were not responsible for? Would you like to be called up while you're preparing Thanksgiving dinner with your family to be told you're terminated from your job because someone in legal made the wrong call about notifications? Since when does the security department make the call on disclosure notifications? Whisper me that. Let me educate you. In my 17 years of experience in cybersecurity, never, never have I seen the decision to report a breach to regulators fall on the shoulders of the chief security officer of a company. Never. And anyone who thinks it does doesn't understand how typical organizational constructs are built. And they don't understand what falls on the auspices of the CSO compared to a CPO, a chief privacy officer, for instance. They don't get it. So Reuters apparently pressed Uber on this. Apparently they thought it was suspect as well. And Uber declined to discuss the details of responsibility for disclosure decisions. Gee, I wonder why that is. I mean, it's not a trick question. Who at Uber is responsible for disclosure decisions to regulators? It's a simple question. Who is it? I mean, what's the secret? It's a simple question. And the fact that they refuse to answer it, I find suspect. It's obviously not favorable to them to answer that question. That's the conclusion I come to. But Uber did make it clear that the Florida breach should have been disclosed under various regulations and, and in fairness to their users and drivers, it should have been disclosed. Which, right now, with all the information available to us that I have, I agree with that. I agree. I, I, like I said before, I can't, find, I can't think of a scenario when that information leaves the firm, it leaves your systems, and an unauthorized individual has access to it. Boom! That's the trigger, as far as I understand. I'm not an attorney. But as an investigator involved with forensics that liaison with attorneys all the time at J.P. Morgan Chase, I think that's, that's the, that, that happens all the time. I just don't understand how Joe Sullivan, you know, how, how that's Joe Sullivan's call. I mean, he's the chief security officer, right? He's not the general counsel. It's not his call. Come on. We'll be right back with reaction from our guest, former Secret Service agent and current CSO of Newstar, Tom Pagler. And I'm going to get his opinion about the craziness going out there in the California Assembly and these new Uber revelations and, and how this is going to affect bug bounties in the future. We're going to talk about bug bounties. You're not going to want to miss that discussion. If we have some time, maybe we'll even get into some specter and meltdown if, 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 uh, if we have some time. So who knows? Who knows? Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public. Listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. 
Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, former Secret Service agent and current Chief Security Officer of New Star, Tom Pager. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me again, George. Happy to be here. Great. So it's great to have you back on the show. You heard me talking about this proposal in the first segment of the show by two assemblymen in California to raise the state taxes of all companies who make more than a million dollars. That equals half of the federal tax break that they just received from the federal government to be reallocated by the state of California as they see fit. Now, and this is laughable to me, but you live in California and and you live in San Francisco and you're familiar with what goes on out there. You're certainly familiar with cybersecurity. What's your take on what this will do to cybersecurity companies in Silicon Valley if this is passed into law? What's your reaction? Well, I mean, I think there's two areas here. Number one, being in California, Silicon Valley, um, you know, pride itself in being liberal and really giving back. And I think what they're trying to do is try to say, hey, no matter what, we're going to continue to give back to social programs. However, I think this is not a really good move right now, given that with the new tax reform, we're not going to be able to write off our uh, state income taxes. So we're going to already have a hit to a lot of people out here. We live in one of the most expensive places uh, in the world to live, not just real estate. Everything costs more money out here. And if you do this and you say, okay, I'm going to hit your your workers who already have a hard time living out there uh, with you know, not able to write off the, tax, the taxes that they used to for California, I'm going to have them live in a very expensive area, and then I'm going to take half of any money you're getting back uh, company, uh, whatever company it is, because you make over a million dollars a year, you really are causing kind of a perfect storm where it could really cause some issues. And like you said, there's a lot of innovation out here, a lot of uh, tech startups, a lot of cybersecurity focused tech startups. If you're starting one, do you do it now in California or do you look at places like Pittsburgh, Austin, uh, maybe Seattle, where it's you know lower cost of living, uh, better uh, tax breaks, and you don't have to give back half of your uh, refund. I think it's actually not a really good idea at this time. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I got to tell you something to make a good point. I mean, do you think companies in California, including cybersecurity companies that start up in, in Silicon Valley, 
Do you think they'll leave the state if this passes? And then what's the incentive to start a new company in California? I mean, why would I do that? If I, if I have a cybersecurity company, if I have a startup, why would I go to California if this law passes when I can go to one of those other places that you just mentioned that are much more business friendly and give me the opportunity to be much more successful on my business and actually provide innovative solutions, protect our critical infrastructure, our national security, and so on. What's the incentive to go there? I mean, will companies leave, you think, if it happens? Well, I think first, your first point was, I don't think people will start as many companies out here. I think that would be the harder part because it's, you know, when you're starting a company, um, you've got to make some decisions. Where's your talent out? How much is it going to cost? You know, you could have a very... Uh, a small run rate, right? You're going to either be raising some funds, living on your own, that kind of thing. So it's hard enough to live in California when you're doing that. And if you look at saying, well, once I start making money, I'm actually going to get penalized. That could really defer some people from doing maybe starts out here. And then if you're a company that's just starting to turn a profit, you know, just starting to make money and you look at go, oh, wow, this is going to really cost us. It's actually assess backwards. You might start looking at going, well, would it be more incentive, you know, would, would it make more sense at this point to just move and, and you know, maybe talk to the employees, see who's willing to go and uh, look at places that are closer. You know, maybe even if you want to just go over to uh, Reno, which is close, you know, in Nevada, or you're going to try to, you know, make a run to like Pittsburgh or Austin, the other ones I've mentioned. So in your, in your estimation, and I don't know that we do uh, as a group, as a, as a sector of cybersecurity companies, people who, you know, uh, promote cybersecurity, do we have lobbyists that go to D.C. and other places in, in other states to, to lobby in behalf, on behalf of cybersecurity companies to help promote cybersecurity businesses, considering it's one of the biggest threats to our national security here in the United States? Do, is there anything like that? And if we don't have it, should we? I mean, should, should, should there be a voice in California against this proposed state law and what it would do to cybersecurity companies? Well, you definitely are going to have lobby lobbyists from the larger companies, established companies. So any very large security uh, company or any large tech company is going to have lobbyists constantly lobbying for the things that they uh, want. Uh, the issue is going to be the smaller companies that this is probably going to impact, the, the newer ones, the new innovative ones. They don't have money for lobbyists. They don't, uh, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm starting a new company, I'm not investing in lobbyists. I'm just investing in my product and trying to make it go to market. Um, if I'm smaller, where I maybe I'm just doing a Series A, uh, just starting to get to a point where I'm I'm seeing some profit come, and you know, like I said, like it's saying a million dollars a year, right? So I, I make a million. I can't afford a lobbyist, but now I'm I'm kind of getting hit. Uh, some of the larger companies, you know, that have been built here for a while, uh, like I said, you know, Silicon Valley is definitely a give back kind of feel to it. They might actually lobby for things like this. They might think it's uh, it's good, um, you know, for giving back, but it, I think it's going to stifle some of the innovation coming in some of the smaller companies. Well, no one's ever stopping anybody from writing an additional check, right? Anybody can always write. And if anybody feels that they want to write a check, they can always get their checkbook out. I'm sure the United States of government will take their check. I'm sure the state of California will take their check. And, and there's many other places and charities uh, and, and social programs that would love to take uh, money for, for companies that have it and want to give it. So that leads with my next question. Should there be extra incentives for them to do that? I mean, there's a, there are companies out there, to your point, that can give more money into the programs in California and elsewhere and whatever they want to do, should they, should there be incentives for them from the United States government and the state of California? Yeah, I think that, like that, you know, those, those areas have been uh, very successful before. I mean, you know, being able to write off charitable contributions, things like that. I think we should continue with that. 
Um, I do think that, uh, you know, maybe some kind of break from donating so much would, would be helpful, but, you know, requiring, especially such a low threshold, you know, million dollars or more, that just to me scares me on the innovation front. I think, you know, maybe giving some kind of incentive that, hey, if you give more back, we'll give you this, you know, lower or California rate, some, some kind of thing that would uh, allow the give back to happen, but not uh, necessarily stifle innovation. And again, I think to your point, there's not really a lobby group probably established just to focus on these smaller companies. So should there be some kind of incentives? Now, just thinking about how cybersecurity how important cybersecurity is to our national security here and how much we depend on the private sector to come up with innovative solutions, disruptive technologies, and basically solutions that mitigate the risk that we have and on our, all our critical systems across all the critical infrastructures. Should there be incentives just in, in general for cybersecurity companies so that w- once they get to that point, hey, look, if they want to give back, you know, they give back. But we got to help these these companies get off the ground. We got to help them generate uh, research and development and generate innovation and and and, and ro- robotics. I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, should we go on the, o- the opposite way we're going right now instead of taxing them more? Should we give them breaks because of the inherent yeah, nature of the business that, that they you know, do? Hopefully, if, as this uh, law comes close and who knows if it'll pass, what will happen. But Maybe they'll consider some of that and, and they could rearrange it and say, okay, we're going to tax you know, larger companies that are established, not necessarily cybersecurity companies, but maybe technology companies, other companies, and take some of that money and give it to smaller um, startup companies that are investing in uh, cybersecurity. You know, maybe something like that would be a better solution. So if you're going to take money away and give it back, it doesn't necessarily have to just go to social programs. Maybe go to innovation programs that are actually tackling uh, major issues, like you said, such as cybersecurity and allowing for you know safety of all the you know California and world citizens. Well said, my friend. Well said. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Tom Pagler after these brief messages. You're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public. Listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, former Secret Service agent, agent and current Chief Security Officer of New Star, Tom Pageler. All right, Tom, let's uh, let's get back to business here about Uber. I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on over there. So Joe Sullivan allegedly testifying under oath and five other current and former Uber employees giving statements to Reuters off the record. Uh, well, anonymously, let's just say that that the allegations in the 37-page Jacobs whistleblowing letter are not true. What's your, what's your reaction to that? I mean, I know Joe Sullivan uh, very well. I, he was a prosecutor back when I was an agent with the Secret Service. I worked with him when he was at uh, eBay, PayPal, at Facebook. If Joe says, whatever Joe says, I believe, uh, the guy is an upstanding, trustworthy uh, individual. And I think that as this uh, unfolds, uh, we're going to learn more that, uh, you know, Joe really wasn't in, at fault. And, um, you know, I don't have any insight. I just want to preface, I don't have any insights. Uh, I, I haven't talked to Joe. I'm, I'm just talking from a past experience with him. But I, I really believe that we're going to see um, he probably did nothing wrong here. So, so let's, let's, let's dive into like the decision making a little bit and talk about things in general in terms of who actually is responsible for uh, reporting or making a decision in terms of disclosure to a regulator. Now, I know that in my experience that the chief security officer of an organization is not responsible for making decisions on around disclosure. Now, it, 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 some of the reports come out saying that Joe actually reported this to the legal department and the legal department will have offices under them like the compliance department. There's regulatory lawyers there. There's uh, there is a uh, chief privacy uh, offices there and whatever their setup is, whatever their organizational construct, surely in our experience, at least in, in, in the corporate world. And even when we have experience with as a secret service agent, when dealing with corporations, when you have you ever gone to the chief security officer to say, okay, are we going to report this to the regular? It doesn't, it's to the, it's to the legal department. Is that your experience? Yeah. Do you have the same experience? Do you have the same opinion? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that any mature organization, which you know Uber should have been, uh, I know Facebook was, eBay, PayPal, you know areas that Joe's worked, anywhere I've worked, you have really strong checks and balances. So basically, if the something's going on, you know the chief security officer, chief information security officer, someone like that, will report to the lawyers what they've learned. Okay, so this, these are the facts of what we've seen. And then usually legal, um, a lot of times the privacy officer or maybe even the GC will make the call whether or not, you know, according to laws and what's been reported to them, this is reportable. So basically there's a check and balance and, and they should be coming together. So to your point, exactly. This would be legal's call ultimately with an informed decision from the security department. So having said that, what's the real issue here? Like, is this, so is the issue that Uber 
didn't have the proper roles and responsibilities defined and the proper procedures defined to determine who makes that decision and when and how? Or is it that some of these laws, quite frankly, around disclosure don't consider bug bounties and maybe they should be revised? Or is it really both? I actually think the bigger issue here is around the laws. They're very difficult to interpret. There's multiple laws. So, you know, there's, there's federal laws, there's international laws, there's state-specific laws. And what's happening is you're trying to identify, you know, should you report? And, and we're, at a, we're at a situation now where, honestly, everybody should just report to be safe on anything. And it's actually kind of ridiculous because if you start thinking about it, it's all white noise. If I just report every, you know, scan of an environment or something, you just start to get to the point where it's just too much. And if you want to compare, actually, a couple recent breaches, I mean, look at the uh, Equifax breach. And it's basically, hey, you know, we lost your data. Good luck. We're going to cover some um, credit monitoring for you and help you, um, which isn't really good as a consumer. And if you look at what I've read Uber tried to do was, okay, there's some kind of um, known flaw. Somebody got some information. Um, they were able to delete the information, confirm it's gone. Um, you know, whoever interpreted laws to say that it wasn't reportable or whatever they decided, let's just say take the laws out of it as a consumer I like what Uber did more than Equifax. Equifax basically said, we messed up. It's your problem now. Go monitor your credit. Sorry. Uber said, oops, let's go get it back. And let's make sure that we protect our consumers. And I think we should be uh, looking at the laws and saying, why aren't they written that way? Because they should be written to, to benefit the companies that actually try to go fix the problem they created. So, you know, you make a mistake you have something go out, like the bug bounty programs, right? You have an issue that is potentially exposing some customers, but you take and you make an, an incentive for those who discover this to report it to you so you can go plug that hole instead of just saying, well, you know, you got it. Uh, sorry, customers. Uh, good luck. So, so in this case, it's the way it looks like it's playing out is that the information did leave the building but they were able to confirm that it was deleted by the bad guys in some way. Not that, you know, I don't know the details around it. So, you know, as well as I do, just because it was deleted doesn't mean it was transferred to someone else. doesn't mean someone took a screenshot of it. doesn't mean they didn't print it out. I, I don't know what was behind the whole thing. You can think of, you know, half a dozen things that could have happened. Somebody could have hacked their computers and their systems and took the data. We don't have access to that. So that kind of thing. I mean, once it leaves the building, if the person said, it gives you evidence that they deleted whatever they took, which in my mind, you know, if you're doing a bug bounty, you shouldn't be exfiltrating any information from the systems to begin with. But if you did and you report it, you know, is that still reportable to the regulators in your mind? Or I mean, once it, once an unauthorized person gets the data, I mean, it's kind of... I, just, I mean, the issue is I don't know think. exactly what happened there. So I don't want to make this specific to Uber. So I would honestly, in my situation, I would, rep you know, report exactly what happened to legal and... and they would make the call, you know, with the informed decision. But talking about that, let's just get a scenario together. So bug bounties are kind of created to say, okay, I found a flaw and I can tell you and you might give me some, you know, there's incentive for me, right? So if I found a flaw and I say, hey, you know, Facebook or, you know, Yahoo, Google, whoever it is, I found a flaw and they say, great, thanks for letting us know. Here's, you know, $5,000 or whatever. And possibly sometimes it works in, into employment. Well, let's just say in the case that we read about, so you have uh, someone who found a flaw and let's just say they found a flaw and they actually 
took some data, like they actually tested it and the data came out. And then they come in and say, hey, found the flaw, found this data, want to give it, you know, want to give it back and get a bug bounty. You say, well, I wish you didn't take the data, but you know, you're coming to us. And I don't know, I don't know the whole situation, how it happened. But if we don't allow that, once you find a flaw, take the data, you basically can't report it, can't, you know, now you've broken the law yourself, you're, you're scared. So let's just say you're kind of like, there's a, there's a real fine line from the white hat hacker to the to the black hat hacker, right? Black being bad, the the, the black hat, you know, the, the in the dark, and the white hat hacker being ethically trying to hack, right? And when you're first learning, and, and we've seen this, you have to have the the ability to be identified by somebody and say, hey, what you're doing is an awesome skill set, and there's a whole private industry that you can work for to do this. Well, you're really close to going to the dark side, right? If you think about uh, Star Wars, right? It's really easy to be tempted by the dark side. And we need to make the incentives to stay on the light side and to say, hey, if you if you do this and, you, and you're good at this, there is a path to make money. And if we don't have the laws written that way that basically don't allow for that, all we're going to do is every time someone finds this, their only path to make money at it would be to go sell the data or do wrong with it. And the company's only path would be to report it, take your lumps, and just hope the consumers, you know, uh, buy them credit monitoring. And and I don't like that. I like the scenario where you can say, okay, I identified you early. I know who you are, and I want to go do more with this and use your skill set. On top of that, if I report you and, and identify this you might dry up some leads because this person might have like found something and they might know other people who kind of found it. And once it's reported and gone out there, everybody will know to hide and run from it. So I almost think that the law should be written and maybe some kind of government agency should just be 100% um, assigned to this. So you can call basically, let's just say it's you know the cyber command of you know DHS or something. And they can call and say, hey, we had some data, exfiltrated, uh, we'd like you to independently do a forensics and show the person's you know removed it. This is the person we want to bring them on as a contractor, teach them some skills, ultimately convert them into a, an employee of the company or something like that. You get on the, on the right path. That's what we want. The way it works right now, we don't have that ability without potentially um, not reporting somewhere you should have. So to me, I, I think we really need to look at the laws and the way they're written and figure out a way to make this work better. Because it's just, you know, right now, the, the NECSO, CISO, privacy attorney, GC is just incentivized to just report it and really not do much more because it's just report it, let everybody know. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. I'm, I'm not ready. I think, you, you know, I think we both mm-hmm. would agree that, you know, bug bounties are an interesting consideration and there's some advantages to bug bounties. And I would, I would agree with you on that. What, what, I, what I find troublesome is, it seems to me that the, the, the hackers that are involved in the bug bounties always have the leverage. So in this case, they, th- th- this you know, alleged 20-year-old who, who lived in Florida had leverage over Uber, where whereas they were put in, in a bad spot where this person said, well, I'm not going to accept your $10,000 uh, payout because my exploit that I found is, is much more dangerous, much more severe and is much higher in criticality than other exploits. So and that's, this is all subjective and open to opinion, of course, and, you know, maybe true or not true. But in this case, he said, well, I think I've, I feel more comfortable with six digits. And so they had to go out and pay this guy $100,000, like, or else 
or else basically you're looking at a situation where you're looking at a breach, a, a full foam bleach, a full bone bleach. And so I think, I think that's where companies fall into a trap. I mean, what, you know, how do they handle this? I mean, I know there's companies out there. I know the, who the companies are. You know that you know the vendors. They're out there. They handle the bug bounties for people. They interface with the with the uh, with the hackers, and they you know they make everything a lot more smooth so that the companies can actually deal with these types of people. But if these types of people are out there hacking companies all the time, the, people think these are like V eight. They're treating them like they're V eight. Uh, uh, like they're 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 their red team. They're not. They're not penetration testing team for these companies. They don't work for the team. They're not under contract. They don't have NDAs. And that's the problem. I mean, so in well, bug, bound, in bug bounties, how do we, a lot how of we move good forward? Questions, right, George? And think about bug bounties. Those were pretty new. It was probably right as you and I were kind of leaving the Secret Service, going into private industry ourselves, was when we started to realize, wait, you know, there's flaws and there's these people who don't have criminal records, who stumbled upon something. And even back then, it was kind of, the Wild West. How do you do it? How do you, how do you, you know, do you pay someone to go find flaws in your system? Is that is that smart? We were afraid of that because is that incentivizing people to attack you? But at the same time, you know, attack you with a reward, which hardens you up. So I think we're at a, another crossroad where, okay, we have established bug bounties and they work pretty well and, and, and you can find flaws. But, you know, there is a step beyond that where we're seeing data come out and what can we do there and, and can we take these a step further and how do we do that in the right way? And to your point, you know, the person says, you know, to Uber, actually, I think I found something bigger than a bug bounty. This is a huge flaw. I want more. Well, why can't they ask for more? Like, why can't it be a capitalistic society? And I'm not saying like with threat, I don't want anybody blackmailing, but it, could there be a way to establish something where, you know, a third party can come in and, and do some validation and kind of you know, figure this out. Is there a way that when someone discovers this, we can give them more incentive for a bigger hole, that kind of thing? Because I mean, believe me, I, you know, if any company will probably pay more money if they can, you know, right. get a forensics that shows that, hey, that's right. been returned. They get someone, you know, on their team who's pretty good. They get, they discover a big flaw instead of, you know, a big hacking organization that is never going to come your way. And I'm not saying... Yeah, that's what so I'm a thinking. third party determines, and I'm not saying so the, the just, third party determines. I just think we're at a crossroads. We need to start oh, thinking these things because I'm I'm really tired for myself as a consumer. I am tired of getting the notices. I literally have credit monitoring pretty much for life. But in the last year, I've gotten seven different notices from seven different companies of, who've lost my data, right. and it, it's actually ridiculous. It, it's absolutely ridiculous that it's okay that basically every month. Or every other month, I'm getting a piece of email, actually a, a letter to my house because they have to send a snail mail saying, hey, sorry, we lost your data. And the government lost my data, right? With the OPM breach, right? It's not even just private industry. It's government. It's just – it's crazy. And as a consumer, I kind of want innovation. I want capitalism. I want somebody to you know, be incentivized to go out there. And, and maybe it is a third party that's not government. Maybe it's third party companies that come in and they validate and they broker and they figure this out. Why don't we have that? Because that could that could really get us beyond this. All right, brother. I'm going to have to cut us off right there. I, we run out of time once again. My pleasure, things George. Go thanks so for quick having around me. Here. So thanks so much, Tom, for coming on. I really appreciate your perspective on things. Hey, thank you. All right. Don't forget to visit Cybersecurity Hub to recatch a recap of tonight's show and other cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there.
Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.